A teaching text for, for today is from Luke uh, chapter 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, the man looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them. Warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, there we go. In the last two weeks, I've had the biggest epic dad fail of my life. Lisa travels every now and then. She's been away for a while uh, at this time. And uh, for the most part, I've kept the kids kids alive while she's been away. But um, on this particular day, I was planning um, to go play golf the next morning early. And I realized at 5.30ish that in order to get my golf clubs for a golf game early the next morning, I'd have to get to storage before they close at 6. And as a single dad with three kids, to get that done uh, seemed like a bit of a mission. Uh, One of my sons had just gotten onto the iPad. They get a little little bit of kind of screen time, play time, creating time. And had just sat down when I realized this, and I realized to stop that and take them all now would be disastrous. Um, So I said, okay, you're old enough, you have a watch on your wrist that is like this kid's GPS thing. You can phone me from your watch. Don't judge me, that's happening. Um, You can phone me from your wrist if anything goes wrong. Sit on this couch and play games. I'll take the other two until I get back. Yes, great. Off I go, and I was halfway there in the car with, again, don't judge me, with the speakers on and the two in the back listening when I get a call from my son sobbing, sobbing, sobbing in tears so that I can't hardly make out what he's saying. And all I heard very clearly was, Dad, a fire started and the house is burning down. 
and I pulled over and I tried to reason through sobbing, not mine, his, and, and I tried to say, just run, just get out, just find anybody and run. And the more I said this, the more frustrated he seemed to become, the more sobbing he was, and the phone cut out. And for about 30 seconds, my life completely stopped. Everything changed. It, it, it was like eternity and mortality clashed. And everything in my mind and heart was now for the first time thinking clearly as in, man, how important was this game of golf anyway that I would do this? And my perspective changed. I got him back on the phone and uh, he seemed to have calmed down and was a little bit distracted. And as I asked my boy, what was, what's happening? He said, I said, are you, are you hurt? Is something happening? Oh, no, no, dad, it was Minecraft. I built a house and it caught fire and it was burning down. He's busy playing this game, Minecraft. True story. Needless to say, when I got home, we had two very, very important conversations. One, what constitutes an emergency? And two, how important has this game become in your heart? But I'll tell you what I learned that day. What I learned was coming close to death or having an encounter that was so vivid and real makes you think differently. It makes you see things differently. And if you've either yourself had a close encounter with death, which I would imagine quite a few of you would have, you would agree that it changes your perspective. Or if you've had a loved one die and you come that close to mortality, whether it was in some real tragic way, you you start to ask questions and look at life differently. Death has a way, or the threat of death, has a way to be a very, very effective wake-up call. And I call these moments that we have transcendent experiences where it seems like a little bit of eternity breaks into your world, and all of a sudden, that which is tangible and real and right in front of us starts to become or, or, or get in, into focus better because of the larger view of what life is truly about. Now, the parables function a little bit like that. It is a glimpse into a, another reality that is supposed to break into our current reality and change the way we look at things. We've seen a few of them already. We've seen the parable in the series, if you've been here, of the mustard seed. Tiny little thing that is almost neglected and all of a sudden the end of the story is, whoa, I didn't see that coming from this little seed. The parable of the weeds and the wheat growing together. We, we have a particular way that, within which we, we interpret life and the struggles of life. And yet, in the end of the day, it'll all make sense. But it doesn't quite make sense in our current reality. Parables show us that there is a different reality that we need to consider 
and let it break into our lives. Most of them have a twist that brings this particular reality into focus, and this one is exactly that. Caleb says this, he said this in the, in the series before, parables speak to our present from a fully realized future. In other words, if you knew the end of your own life story, would you make decisions that are different from the ones you're making right now? Would you live differently? Would you see things differently if you saw the full end of the story? And this parable does exactly that. The rich man and Lazarus. Let's go through it quickly, a few points about it. But before I do that, let me start with what Jesus is not teaching. Because sometimes from parables, we try to uh, create some kind of a theology from them that Jesus is not actually trying to teach. He's trying to illustrate a particular end or a point. Here's a few things that this parable does not teach. It does not teach the specifics of how heaven and hell works. It doesn't create a theology of heaven and how you can communicate and all that. This is a story that illustrates it. We can't fully understand how it's going to work. We have some clues, some guidelines, but we can't take theology from a parable, which is supposed to be a metaphor or a story about ushering in a new reality. It does not teach that the 1% are going to hell while everybody else will be in heaven. It does not teach that rich is ungodly and poor is godly. Many uh, historical movements in the Christian faith have taken things like this uh, and somehow twisted it in a way that, uh, that brings to it meaning that Jesus never intended it to have. It doesn't teach that enjoying life is ungodly. And it doesn't teach that we can speak to Abraham. That's how cults start. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. Here's what it does say. There was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. This is a picture. Purple was the, the particular dye the, of cloth that was only, it was very complex to manufacture at that time. And so only the wealthiest of the wealthy had access to this particular fashion sense. It is the... Uh, it is, it is the high brands of what we have right now. It also says that there was a beggar and that he was covered with sores and he was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And then it says, even the dogs came to lick his sores. And what, what Jesus is doing as he tells this parable is, is he's painting a contrast of extremes. The scraps that fall from the table, there was um, part, of, part of the custom that could be interpreted into the story is that um, around like very wealthy feasts, there were part of the bread that you could actually use to rub your, hand, your dirty hands against. Um, and the crumbs of that you would just kind of brush off onto the, the floor because it's a way of cleaning your hands. And it kind of insinuates that this beggar was willing to eat the dirty bread scraps coming off the hands of those who are about to feast just to get some sustenance. Just, just get that picture. The most extreme of extreme. It's the digging through 
the garbage bins to find any scraps of food that he could consume to stay alive. Sores, unhygienic, malnutrition. Even the dogs came to lick his sores. And this is, is one of those ultimate pictures of defilement. And so in the historic ancient custom, that would be something so defiled that nobody would want to have anything to do with that person if the dogs were licking them. And the contrast is important because on the one side, the rich man is shown, displayed, portrayed to be, in one sense, favored by God. Because when God's favor is upon you, you're blessed, you have wealth, life goes well with you. And so the expectancy would be that this is the godly person who is, quote unquote, right with God. And then on this side is the picture that is painted of a completely defiled, insufficient person. The dogs lick his sores. And then the kind of the village M. Night Shyamalan kind of twist comes in the end where Jesus says, no, 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 this guy goes to heaven and this guy does not. And so imagine yourself into the story of the day. It was a drastic shift of reality for the people who were listening to this parable. It wasn't just, oh, yeah, yeah, I could have predicted that plotline. It was like, what are you saying? Everything I have known, the, the, the reliance structures that I have in my heart and my head is being pulled apart by Jesus as he tells the story little by little. And we'll look at why that is. That is a little bit of the context. There's even more. The rich man speaks, uh, it speaks about that he was buried, something that was done when you have the resources to do it. The poor man just gets carried to Abraham's side. There's no evidence of even a burial, a proper dignified burial. And then the discussion starts. But this is what Jesus is saying in this parable, or with this parable. He's saying that there is a certain way we perceive life in, in our current state. But if you are able to see to the end, you'll see that it's actually a little bit different from what you expect. And so he's saying this, Life is not exactly as it seems, maybe right now. The equations that our life works with, that our culture works with, is not necessarily the equations that God uses. And Scripture is so full of it. You can go through the stories of Scripture, and it's exactly the same thing. The rich man comes to Jesus, and Jesus has this encounter to, uh, with this, this rich young ruler, and the same thing happens. He says, I've obeyed all the commands. In other words, uh, I am godly, I've done everything I need to, and uh, I am wealthy, and the sign and the favor of God is on me, and Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Almost a rhetorical question, and Jesus says, oh, do these commands, they're like, I've done it all, and then Jesus goes, well, why don't you get rid of all of these things that you are relying on, this, this wealth that you have, have gathered, give that away to the poor, and all of a sudden, the structures of life that he has based his reliance and trust on is taken away and he walks away from Jesus and we don't know the end of the story. I wish we did. 
And so this parable does that. It gets under the radar. It dismantles our reliance structures. And then it gives a new reality. Things are not always as they seem. And so the question that we have to ask or ourselves is what does this parable usher in? And these two questions have stood out as I've studied and looked at it and prayed. And I want us to focus on these two questions towards the end as we feel like Jesus ushers in these two questions and asks every single one of us this morning the same two. One, what do you trust in? What do you really trust in? And two, what do you do with what you have been given? One, what do you trust in? And two, what do you do with what you have been given? The first one, what do you trust in? I had a conversation this morning with my kids who had been given, uh, we were just um, with their grandpa who turned 60 and uh, as, a, as a good grandpa does, gives them money on his birthday. It's like, here's a blessing for you, go buy something. And so they got some money and they bought something. It was only like 20 bucks. Well, only 20 bucks, is, that's a lot for them. It's like, whoa, I'm rich. Um, and so we spoke about tithing again every time they go. I try to do that. And, I, and so I was standing with them early this morning at the back there. And they were putting money into the envelopes and putting it in. And you've got you to know that one of the greatest acts of spiritual warfare that you're going to do for your kids is trying to teach them to be generous. It's just any parent here will know that that is a really, really big feat. And you need the miraculous Holy Spirit of God to come and do that. And so I'm standing with them at the back there and I'm saying, you need to give some of the money that you've been given to God. Why? Let's talk about it again. We've done this so many times. Let's do it again. One, because God says we need to. And with obedience comes blessing. And we, we know that the, the obedience to God brings joy and favor. And it's the way of the kingdom life and all of that. Two, you want this money so much that giving this away is an act of war against the greed that grows in your heart. Now, don't judge me for this, but this is the actual illustration I used. It is like there is a monkey on your back. And that monkey wants to teach you and force you to keep everything for yourself. And every time you give something away, you are starving that monkey. It gets weaker and weaker as you starve that thing in you that wants, wants, wants. And I said to them, I want you to know that I still give away of everything I get because I know that I need to starve the same thing. I'm not over that. I'm not beyond that. I need to still do it for my own soul. Fortunately, they weren't too scared about the monkey on their back. And then the last one, I just said, it's worship. It's an act of worship to God, saying, God, I trust in you. You are my source. And so when we see this question being asked of us, what do you trust in? If we are truly honest, I think we all, including myself, as I've wrestled with this this week, I realize there are things I trust in, some of my securities, some of the things that I have constructed in my life, whether they be relational, whether they be financial, that 
I have placed as my security beyond God. And even just this weekend, I was wrestling with some of these securities in my life. And I said, God, am I trusting in them just a little too much? Why is this so painful? When it comes to financial realities, as uh, this parable points to, because it is in the context of financial, the parable just before this ends, Luke 16, speaks about stewarding as well. So Jesus is trying to make a point. And part of that point is we can't necessarily judge life through the eyes that we now have. In other words, one of the questions here is, um, in verse 25, Abraham replied, Son, you remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now that brings up some deep, deep soul level questions. God, what about evil in this life? What about suffering? Why is it that sometimes we, we're on this side? Why is it that I'm suffering but, but their life is going so well? Or we're on this side sometimes. God, I just feel like I'm so blessed. Why, why are there people in this world in a place just not having received the kind of gifts that you and I have had the privilege to receive? Those are difficult, difficult questions that we actually don't find the answer in the story for. It doesn't say why he was given good gifts or why Lazarus wasn't given good gifts. But we do find an answer that is sufficient for our questioning and our reasoning. And that answer is this. If you knew the whole story, if you knew the end, then this question is not the actual question we need to ask. The question then is not why is there this discrepancy? Why is there this suffering? The question is, what am I doing with what I have been given to help in a world that desperately needs help? And so he's brought to a point of accountability. And this is the challenging thing with this particular parable and a few others, is that it speaks about a day of reckoning. It speaks about a judgment day. And in our culture, we don't like that. We don't, we're not comfortable even with this idea of heaven and hell or, or that there would be this judgment day. We, we kind of have been drip-fed from our culture, this idea that, oh, just do good and be nice and, and you'll be fine. But there comes a day where we will not be judged on what we, did, we weren't given. We will be judged on what we did have. And so this... This answer that Jesus gives through this metaphor of Abraham speaking says, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while he received bad things. And then he says, he carries on in the story, then he goes, he talks about his relatives and he says, but can you just go and warn them? And Jesus is again trying to dismantle this, this idea that they did not have enough warning. For, for the rich man, he's still trying to make a case that this is unfair. And then Abram very wisely says, and there's so, so much of a beautiful picture, a prophetic picture that Jesus is doing. He, he says this, um, Abram replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And then he's still trying to debunk this. And he says, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And this is Jesus' like ultimate twist at the end of the story. Because he's pointing to himself. He says, So Abram said to him, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And in the ultimate kind of twist in the story, Jesus points towards his own act of dying and being raised from the dead, which he knew was coming. And he says, not even that will be a sign enough for them to listen if they didn't listen to the prophets. And so we, we look at the story because it's a story of contrast. Everything we have received is a gift from God. We did not earn it. And he's trying to, he's trying to make this point. The wealthy person received it as a gift. And in our world, I... Uh, this is in my heart at least, we live in a world of kind of the self-made person. And in New York, that is amplified with the kind of ambition with which we pursue our careers and our dreams and our futures. And this whole story becomes a cautionary tale against the constructs of our lives that, that forces us to rely on our own abilities our own wealth, our own power structures. And it is really important that we heed this cautionary tale. The, 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 the scriptures are full of the same message. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the worries, the cares of life, the needs will be added to that. But seek those things and you'll, you'll miss out on that. The story of the pearl of great price. Put the, put the value where value is most of, of greatest importance. And so these are the contrasts we deal with in the story. One, a poor man and a rich man. In other words, the circumstances of this life we struggle with. And I ask myself the question again, why is it hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God as is said by Jesus? And part of the answer is that their present Reality confirms that they do not need God. And I say there, but I'm actually saying mine, because I consider myself as part of, at least statistically, the world's wealthiest. Does your current reality confirm your suspicion that you don't actually need God. When it comes to finances, my, my story of giving with my kids, in essence, I hope we get there, is this. When I give, do I put myself into crisis? Or even is my giving within just the means that is okay for me to survive? Now, I'm not... Definitely not advocating for just irresponsible throwing away of your resources. But there is a supernatural element to giving that every time we give, we are saying, God, I actually really do need you to provide for me. And so the question is, are we, is, our, is our current reality, our present reality, affirming the, 
the misconception that we don't really need God. And then secondly is, as why is it hard for a rich person to get into, to enter the kingdom of God is they use their strength, their ability, their power, their influence to love themselves and not to obey the most important commandment as Jesus says, which is love God and love neighbor. And so this is a really important thing. C.S. Lewis says, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And so scripture warns us that we cannot love both God and money and that we have to choose the master whom we serve. And that means we either serve our reliance structures our source of sustenance as we think our jobs, our bosses, our income, our careers, or we serve God. And if we choose God, then everything else needs to become a servant of God as well. And so the contrast in power is really important. Mark 12 is this text where Jesus is asked about the most important commandment. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor then as yourself. There, there is no greater commandment than these. He takes those two and he makes them one. This comes from Deuteronomy 5, obviously, that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength. But what stood out to me there in terms of our ability to provide is that word strength. That word strength refers to the influence, the power, and the wealth that we have. In other words, our ability to act and influence and affect things in our life. That is what the root word means. I can imagine loving God with my heart. This is my passions, my desires, my affection. I can imagine that I would give him my soul, which is my mind and my will and my emotions. Love God with my mind, yes. Love him with my emotions, yes. Let me love him emotively, but also keep my emotions under his rule and reign and lordship. Love him that way. But we get to love him with our strength, and we don't quite always know what that is. And if we look at that word, it truly means that we need to love him with our wealth, our ability to influence with the resources that we have. We need to love him with our power. What position in life has, has God put you in in order to influence life for his kingdom? And we need to love him with our, our influence. And so the story normally goes like this. I've seen this uh, in movies. I've seen this in documentaries. I've read this in New York Times articles. 
of people who come to New York seeking this strength. They seek the wealth. They seek the influence. They seek the power. They want to work for a certain company. They want to grow their resume in a certain way. They have a vision of their life and the trajectory of their life. And then they get to a place where they are confronted by a reality. They have a little bit of a Lazarus rich man moment, a near-death experience where they're confronted by like, man, everything I've pursued is kind of empty. And then you get a movie like, uh, what's it called? Small Town Alabama. What what, what is it called? Sweet Home Alabama. (laughs) Hey man, I'm African. Forgive me if I'm still learning these things. Sweet Home Alabama. And the New Yorker goes to the small town and is confronted by the simplicity of life and, and the, the reality of the influence and what was I really working for here? And, and she's won over by, by the southern accent of the hometown. <laughs> but I wonder if that's maybe just a false, a false ending because instead of then coming to this reality, like what is this really for and thinking that the answer lies in suburbia or small town somewhere, maybe... It is, no, what are we doing with the influence and the power and the wealth that God has given us? We, us in this room, most of us, sit in a comparatively extremely privileged position. And this parable says that we are going to be held accountable for how we have stewarded the gifts that God has given us. I don't want to have the kind of wake-up call that I had when my son phoned me where everything came into focus and I was like, what is happening? I never anticipated this. I want to live in such a way that I know I'm honoring and living within my means and within what God has given me for the sake of every one around me. What are we doing with what God has given us? What do, you, what do you rely on? What do you trust in? The second contrast is the future reality that there are outside of what we see visually here and now, tangibly, there is a spiritual reality and there is a difference between being spiritually rich and being spiritually poor. Our souls are hungry, and we try to feed them with the wrong things, and we seek our fulfillment in the pleasures instead of truly evaluating the state of our souls. And the state of our souls is often masked, anesthetized by the pleasures of our world or by the ambitions that we pursue. And I think it's really, really important for us all to take moments in life where we step back and we ask ourselves the question, outside of what I think I am doing, what is the state of my soul? And by that, I'm not saying we need to all sit down and ask, man, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? I'm, I'm, I'm saying we need to evaluate how am I truly doing? Because in this case, for example, Jesus is not saying that poverty is a blessing, But he is saying poverty or pain or suffering or any of those things are not irredeemable towards blessing. In fact, God can use these things to draw us closer to him. 
And I've always said this, and I, I always cringe just a little bit when I say this, but I know it's true that crisis is a gift to us because it causes us to, to question that which we are really relying on, that which is really important. I don't want it for anybody. I don't, I don't want everyone to suffer, but I do want us to get to the true state of our soul. And this parable asks us, us that question. And so right at the end when he says, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The question that echoes when I read that every time is this, am I listening to the sign that Jesus came, gave himself up, emptied his own riches of being in heaven, to suffer on earth, to face the struggles, the temptations, to die a brutal death, to be raised to life again by the power of God, conquering over sin and death. When I see that, when, I'm, when I hear that again, even though I've heard, heard it many times, does it still hold the weight of meaning to me? Or have I stopped relying on that? And relying on the things that just to get me through every day, the joys. So I want us to answer those two questions in a few moments now. One, what is it that we rely on? In other words, if I had to lose this thing, what would happen to my life? If I had to lose my job, my career, my money, my loved ones, what am I relying on? What are the reliance structures that I've built my life on? And two, what am I doing with that which God has given me? How am I going to be held accountable for the influence, the power, the wealth that God has entrusted to me? And if you have come here with maybe not a concept of Jesus as the ultimate kind of understanding of life and hope within the kingdom, and certainly this parable ushers in a kingdom reality that um, things are not always as they seem, as Jesus says. But if, the, if that is you, I want you to at least just consider that Jesus here says, there are signs, you have had transcendent moments, you have had moments where questions have been asked of your soul that, that maybe made you just go, wait a minute, I need to just think about this for at least the slightest moment. And this morning, maybe one of those. The fact that you're here may mean that you're here asking those questions. And I want to encourage you just to take a few moments as we're going to sit in, in silence before we respond. Just asking that very question, God, the sign that he speaks of, of someone rising from the dead, is that sufficient for me to look and at least ask the question of trust? Can I trust in something beyond my ability to sustain. Because as another parable that Jesus speaks of, which is, uh, he, he tells the story of a house built on sand or a house built on a rock. And the idea of it is, what are you basing your life on? Sand that within a storm can be washed away and the house can crumble, or a rock, the storm can come, but it'll stand secure and firm. We're faced with that even today. Do you trust 
in yourself, in your ability, or in others? Or do you trust in something that cannot be denied? We're going to take a few moments just to ask ourselves that question. I, I just encourage you to spend time before God praying honest prayers and confessing some of these things. And then we're going to come to communion, which is just for us a beautiful symbol of like, yes, I do trust in Jesus, your death and your resurrection. And so when we take communion today, we want to take it with that in mind. We want to come as a declaration that God, I trust in that and not in my own provision. And that this is the table of provision for us. This is our sufficiency for life and hope and everything we need. So let's take a few minutes just in silence and then we'll respond by communion.